And if we were to put all these things that we find in uh, Titus chapter 2 and actually the entire chapter, sound doctrine is all about living a disciplined life. It's all about a Christian saying no to certain things, a Christian saying yes to certain things, and uh, seeking to put those things into practice in their life. Uh, sound doctrine uh, is, uh, is something that so many talk about staying away from or avoiding at least churches and pastors when in reality sound doctrine is exactly what everyone needs. And, uh, and we're taught that throughout this entire chapter. Now, the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. It's available to all, as we've said, and you understand clearly that's the truth brought out here. It is God's grace. It's not a man's grace. It's not what we work up and we win because you can't win grace. Grace is unmerited favor. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's the, the uh, supernatural enabling of God to undeserving sinners to help them do something they could never do in their own power. And God gives grace in so many ways. And saving grace is what we're talking here. And God is the only one who has saving grace. And, um, and it's available to all. And that grace does something. Remember what we said about, about the word teaching? We said there's, there's a, really the main word for teach is didasko. We mentioned that last week in proving your, your Greek knowledge. All right. Uh, didasko is the main word taught for, or found teaching in the New Testament. But this word is a different word. It's not the word didasko. It's not the word commonly found that talks about just, just a teacher instructing. But it is the word translated, does anyone remember? Chasten in Hebrews chapter 12 when God talks about his chastening with his children. And so we learn, and uh, this is interesting because I've, I've never actually had that brought out before, but as I was looking at the passage, it was interesting to see that the grace of God really does in sense spank us. It, it, it just tells us, hey, look, your life should be different. You need to discipline your life, and it chastens you in that direction. Um, and so it begs us this evening to ask this question, do you really appreciate grace? Because if you do, then you would listen to it as it, it uh, kind of gives you that spanking saying, all right, li live a different life. Discipline your life accordingly. And discipline life is not an easy thing. In fact, I, I, we're, I think we're going to see that actually um, a point made that tells us that truth in this very passage. But there was a guy by the name of John Maxwell, and he made this observation about discipline. He said this, I define self-control in the beginning of life as the choice of achieving what I really want by doing things that I really don't want to do. Then he said, once this becomes a habit, Discipline becomes the choice of achieving what I really want by doing the things I now want to do. I really believe, he said, that a disciplined life becomes a joy, but only after we've worked hard to practice it. And I think he's right. Look, look um, it is not fun trying to practice a diet 
But if one disciplines their life in that manner and in that area, after a while, it may not be, I don't know if it ever becomes a joy. I just can't think it doesn't become joy. But the results and the change and the, if you would, the better feeling and the, all the other things that come with following through with that and, and bringing it, if you would, to fruition ends up becoming something that I want to maintain, that I want to do because because I feel so much better and I'm realizing, the, the, if you would, the benefits of doing this. And so it is with discipline. And I think we could say that in just any area of life. It's not just a matter of someone practicing a diet, but it's just in any area of life. Um, it's hard to get started in Bible reading on a regular basis. But here's the thing. When, when you take the time and you really do it and when you put forth the effort, at first it may be, be, be a drudgery and it may even be something like, Oh, man, I really don't have time for this, but, I, you know, or I'm really tired and I don't really want to get up early, but I'm going to do it. And when I do it, not only do I find there's a blessing in doing that, but then over time it gets to the place where it isn't a drudgery anymore. It's just something that I learned to do. I've disciplined my life. And quite frankly, that's the whole Christian life. And if we wanted to describe this entire passage, that's what it is. It's the disciplined life. The grace of God spanks us and says, discipline yourself. Actually, I guess it disciplines us. And it causes us or encourages us. And that's where we're at, teaching us. So first of all, the grace of God teaches us some negative things. And we already talked about those things, the, wor the ungodliness and worldly lust. Recipients are taught to deny or to loathe these things as we uh, were seeking to follow with uh, alliteration. Then recipients are taught, we find in this passage, to live. So we're to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. But how are we supposed to live? So give me the, give me the list. And I didn't even give you room to put it down on your outline. But I think you can put those things in. How are we to live? Soberly. Righteously. Very good. And godly. Justly. In this present world, all right, so, and godly in this present world. Thank you very much. I, you had it right, all right? Recipients are taught to live. Putting these three things together, one author wrote these words, the positive side of the Christian character, soberly, that is with self-restraint in relation to oneself, righteously or justly in relation to our neighbor, godly or piously in relation to God. Um and with a love and a reverence toward God. So the grace of God teaches that in relation to my own life, I practice self-control or temperance so that it affects my life, it affects the life of those around me, and it affects my relationship with, with God. And I thought that's a great way to describe these things, live soberly, righteously, and justly. Let's talk about these things briefly. We're to live soberly. Um, and some would say, well, that's, that's free from drink. But, you know, we've already been told that. The, um, elder aged men were told to be, um, to be sober. Aged women uh, were told not to be given to much wine. So this word sober, is, it carries the idea of that a serious mind. Uh, John Wesley said this about the word sober. He said, sobriety in the scripture sense is the whole temper of a man. It's not just a single virtue in him. It comprehends all, comprehends all that is opposite to the drowsiness of sin, 
the folly of ignorance and the unholiness of disorderly passions. Sobriety is no less than all the powers of the soul consistently and constantly awake, duly governed by heavenly prudence and entirely conformable to holy affections. And that's what God desires. Righteously. Uh, this word means just, doing what's right by people, doing what's right before God, evaluating our actions. All right, is this right? I, you know, real simple, is this right? Is this good? Is this best? Um, there is right and wrong. And uh, we, we really do live in a day where people are just, I don't want to discuss right and wrong anymore. And you can't discuss right and wrong. Well, that's just your opinion. I, I, really, that's almost the mentality of, of people, even in Christian circles. Well, well, that's just your opinion. You know, that's your interpretation. That, that's another way we put it in Christianity. That's your interpretation. And, and my question always is, if someone asks me, if someone makes that say, well, that's your interpretation, I say, what's your interpretation? Well, it's different than yours. <laughs> well, that's obvious. Because <laughs> you wouldn't say it was my interpretation. All right, so what is your interpretation? And, uh, and here, here's, what, here's what my interpretation is based on. To see that there is a right way to interpret Scripture. There is a right way to understand Scripture. So I want to come to a right understanding. So tell me what your interpretation is. If your interpretation is right, then let's follow it. But uh, I've been told that as a pastor numerous times. And, and uh, quite frankly, um, most often people, it's just they don't even want to discuss it. But look, there is right and wrong. And a Christian is to live righteously. So if we're to live righteously, we've got to ask the question, is this right? And we have to be able to answer that question from an authority. That, that's why when, when people say, well, it really doesn't make a difference what we do. It doesn't matter the music you use. It doesn't matter the places you go. It doesn't matter the things you do as long as you love God. And, and, and here's the thing. If we're supposed to live righteously in this present world, then, then there has to be a way to discern what's right. And our, as a Christian, I'm to prove what is acceptable unto the Lord. Romans chapter 12 says that we may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's right, there's wrong, and as a Christian, that's what I'm supposed to discern. And then I'm supposed to discipline myself to live righteously in this present world. And boy, I, I could go off on that uh, subject for a long time. So we're not going to go there any longer. Uh, but uh, then we're supposed to live godly in this present world. Uh, with a uh, uh, living life in a way that God would be pleased with me. And that means there are times where I'm going to have to make people very unhappy with me. I, I, would, I would have, there, there would be numerous people that would vehemently and and if you would maybe even forcefully say, you are wrong by saying a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Being godly demands that I say that. Whether someone likes it or not, whether it's popular or not. Someone says, well, you know, our family goes to this church. We've always gone to this church. We've always been, we've always been Catholics. That's the one I hear more than anything. We've always been Catholics. 
the blessed hope, the, the happy hope. Um, you say, what is the blessed hope? Well, if we're looking at the book of Titus, we'd have to point back to verse 2 of chapter 1. What is, what is the blessed hope? The hope of eternal life. You say, oh, really, is that, is that what he's talking about? Well, um, I, you know, you, you might want to argue something else, but if you look at uh, chapter 3, look at what it says in verse 7. That, we, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to what? Okay, so what is that blessed hope? It's the hope of eternal life. Which, which begins, we receive that immortal body. You know, um, I've been thinking about this. Brother Deal's been dealing with, Brother Deal's been dealing with the whole, I mean, he's dealt with 7,000 years of things so far. In, uh, in, in the Bible in like, in like two months. That's, that's an amazing thing to cover 7,000 years. Well, what a history teacher, 7,000 years. In just two months. Uh, with one Sunday morning at a time, right? Um, but uh, he's been dealing with, with the, the end times. You, you think about it. We are going to come back to this earth. We're going to be here for 1,000 years, but we'll be immortal. I don't, I don't know if you thought about that. But uh, no, no believer who is, is living today will, will die during that time. Um, we're going to reign and rule with him. Uh, there's, there's just a lot that's, that's really kind of in, intriguing about that, about that time. You know? um, we're we're going to obviously help the help the earth recover from the devastation that's come from God's judgment that's been poured out for the three and a half years previous. In fact, um, you know, it talks about uh, just a gruesome situation from the, the Armageddon. Um, besides the the devastation that's come, and the Lord's going to, you know, make everything new. But what, what, what is it going to be like? Well, we look for that blessed hope uh, of a place um, living, living on earth. Here's the thing. You and I won't be tempted during that time. I, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine living on, on earth and having no temptation. Nothing that will tempt us to go into sin, to do that which is wrong, because we won't have a sin nature. No, the rest of the people in this world will. That, that also is going to be pretty strange. But those are all things that we look forward to. Eternal life. Um, looking for that blessed hope. So that's the, the first thing we look, we look for. When Jesus left this earth, what did the angels say to the followers as they gazed up in heaven? Ye men of Galilee. Why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. A cloud, by the way, received him out of the sight. He's going to come in the clouds. We heard that this morning. It was mentioned in Sunday school again. And um, it, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's the hope believers have. 
Paul preaches in Acts 24, and he talked about the hope of the resurrection, and we have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that corruptible, putting on incorruption. We're looking forward to that day. I don't know about you. But the chastening of grace says this. You may be discouraged and find the path difficult as you seek to discipline your life to follow these things, to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and, and godly in this present world because this present world is not favorable to such. But look for the blessed hope and keep your eyes on the goal and never lose sight of the fact there's coming a day when you won't battle with that anymore. You don't have to worry about dying anymore. Um, and, uh, and you'll have a, an immortal body the glorious appearing then, not only the blessed hope, but then the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, referring, by the way, to one person. Jesus is the great God and Savior. Jesus the Christ. He is the God and Savior. It would be a grand manifestation, an amazing manifestation, a breathtaking event to finally see the one we have not seen, but in whom we have believed. A preacher said our daughter, son-in-law, and two grandsons were driving through the Midwest a while back, and they weren't liking the drive very much. For most of the day's drive, they were in the thick of powerful storm systems and drenching rains, more significantly a lot of dangerous lightning, until they got to Springfield, Missouri, Missouri, as they say, certainly. When our daughter called us, he said, they were heading south out of Springfield and liking the trip a lot more. She said, you can't believe how ugly it looks behind us. The sky and the lightning back there look so angry and foreboding, but the road ahead is clear and bright. And he just brought out the point, looking for that blessed hope is, um, is, is seeing the, the lightning and the thunder and the storm and uh, and seeing the, the bright day, the, the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, sometimes in the struggle to live for God, one can get cap captivated, he said, by the doom and gloom of the present. And that's when we need to look up. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it's as if Paul uh, just wanted to remind God's people and Titus, who this one is that's coming. So I put it costly or challenging grace, costly or challenging grace. In verse 14, who gave himself for us. So consider his deed. Think about his deed. If you've forgotten what's been, what has been done and take some time to ponder it. Don't think that the Lord's Supper is, is just something that, that Jesus Christ tacked on right before he died. There's a purpose in the Lord's Supper. It's to just always keep before us as we look for that blessed hope that this is the one who is, whose hands were pierced, whose side was pierced, whose hands, whose hands received nails that we might be free from the power of sin. And 
and what is a blessed hope came at great price to Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, there's no hope. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so that blessed hope, the thing that we look forward to with anticipation, came at a great price, and we should never forget it. And uh, the Lord's Supper is designed to remind us of that. Um, and we need to remind ourselves of it. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So his deed, he gave himself. And I just think about it. Who gave himself for us. Ponder it. Who gave himself for me, gave himself for you. That's the message given in verse 14. And it's almost as if Paul knew we might forget exactly who it was and what he did. Although I know we can't. It's just, this is what, this should be that driving force. Contemplate the love of God that makes the blessed hope possible. Do you know throughout Scripture we're told to do that? Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 5, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that's true. There's no reason for Jesus to die if we were dead men already, without hope. But we were. So here's what we judge. If someone died for all, Jesus did, then all men were dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So the point is, I was dead, and Jesus had to die that I might be given life. And when I consider that, I should be constrained. That's the grace of God that brings salvation disciplines us to live differently. In this present world, his deed. Think about it. Then his desire. What, did, what was his desire? Well, if you look at it, then he, might, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. This is, this is amazing. Two, two things. First, to ransom us. This sounds, I know it sounds rather ridiculous, but let's say a, a, some guy is, is taken. This is what happened years ago in, in America. It was a slave trade. Man uh, taken from Africa, um, enslaved, captured, if you would, chained, put on a boat, brought to the Americas, sold. By the way, in various other places as well. It wasn't just America. Um, and so let's say that this one particular slave is, is, um, is bought. He's made to work in appalling conditions. He serves long hours. He's regularly beaten for not doing enough. And one day a kind man sees the owner beating this man and asks how much it would cost to buy him. And the, the owner of this man sets an exorbitant price for the slave thinking you wouldn't be willing to, to pay that price. 
But the kind man doesn't flinch. He accepts the price. He, he pays it completely. He takes the man home. He cares for the slave. He cleans him up. When he's recovered, he, he says to the man, you're free to go where you will. Beautiful picture. Now imagine this. What would you think if that man went back to the owner who abused him and said, I like being your slave? You think the guy has something wrong with him? There is something wrong with someone that would go back to a terrible master and say, let me work for you again. Um, and Rightfully so, you'd think there's something wrong. Why? Because he, he was bought, and he was freed from that man. He goes back to serve him. just doesn't make sense. Christ didn't save you to send back you back to the slave market of sin. That slave market of sin beat you for years, made you miserable. And God, God bought you out of that. He ransomed you. Look, don't go back to it. That's the message. That's what he did. That's why he did it. According to this passage, he wanted to redeem us from all iniquity. There's, there's no iniquity that God wants you to be controlled by, and you have to be controlled by. He redeemed you. He, he paid the price for every sin. You don't have to serve him any longer. And that it really is discouraging today to Christians that, well, I just can't help myself. This is just the way I am. And, and God says, look, I, I saved you. I, I paid the price for every one of your sins. You don't have to live controlled by them any longer. You don't have to. To ransom us. And then notice, to purify him unto himself. To redeem us from all iniquity and to purify unto himself a peculiar people. Uh, the word cleanse or purify means to cleanse. So his desire was to ransom and then to cleanse. He died to purify to himself a holy people, people who, who not only are holy, but people who have a zeal for holiness and doing that which is good. Um, and that's what he came to do, zealous of good works. And we should have a zeal for good works, shouldn't we? I mean, he redeemed us. He, he bought us to purify us. So then we should be zealous for this. This should be something that really drives us. And I, I know I've, I've um, th there's, there's times that in my life that I, I just, I'm just not sure that's, that's true, and it needs to be. This is something as a Christian that I, I should take very seriously. This is what Jesus did for me. And, and this is what he, why he did it, so then I should have some enthusiasm about living a godly life and disciplining myself according to this plan that he gives us. Now, here's what happens, and I've got to tell you, this is, the, this, this, is the, this is the truth. There is a time when we preach this passage, we basically end at verse 14. Because it's like, this is a great place to stop. But Paul gives us verse 15. And it's not something to be ignored. And it actually explains what a pastor is supposed to do. So although your outline has ended, <laughs> be 
because I was going to do what preachers do. Um, when I came back and read, I said, why are we not addressing verse 15? So he says, these things speak, exhort, and rebuke with all authority, let no man despise thee. Let's just take a couple minutes if we can. See, you thought you were getting out early. Sorry. You lose. Sometimes in preaching, great truths found in Scripture, we focus on the main thrust of the teaching, and we avoid insignificant words or phrases, sometimes even verses. And I think verse 15 is one of those verses where we have just been fed so wonderfully truth that is challenging that we come to verse 15 and say, eh, let's just go on to chapter 3. And that shouldn't be done. Um, verse 15 is an attack on verse that has little imp importance. Paul pa pauses at this, con at this juncture of sound doctrine to help Titus see that he has a great responsibility of, as a pastor. And he helps, by the way, all pastors see that a pastor has a solemn duty. And he helps Christians see that they have a solemn duty. And they need to understand what the pastor is supposed to do. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead and his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, the instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Now some of those admonitions are actually found here in verse 15. This young preacher was obligated to teach these things. He was commanded to teach them. He was told to do it with authority. And that's an important point. You know, um, it truly is. I, I just marvel that I hear preachers say, well, we don't preach doctrine anymore. Doctrine's dry and boring. And that is just an absolute denial of what he was just taught. And then the reiteration in verse 15. Look, speak these things, exhort these things, rebuke with all authority. This is something we need to hear. And the point of verse 15 is it's not going to be popular. The time will come, Paul told Timothy, when, when people have itching ears. Uh, the, the point seems to be, well, there's a couple different understandings of it, but seems to be they, they won't, they want a radical, they want to hear pleasing things, they don't want to hear truth. And, and we, well, truth is we've been at that, we've been at that stage for a long time, but it seems like we are, we're at a crisis place in the church today. People just don't want to hear this kind of stuff. I don't want people telling me to live my life differently, I don't want people telling me that I'm not supposed to drink, I don't want people telling me. You know, I, I want to practice social drinking, so that's your interpretation of Scripture. I don't want people to tell me these things. I understand. Paul understood that. That's why he told Titus, you speak these things, you exhort these things, you rebuke these things with all authority. This is an important thing. Here's Consider with me the pastor's responsibility. Solemnly obligated, uh, uh, solemnly obligated, alligated. you're alligators. Solemnly, okay, you try to say those a bunch of times. Solemnly obligated 
There it is. I got it out now a second time. I'm not going to try it again. To speak these things. The word speak means to talk, to utter, and even preach. So the command here is that some and most sound doctrine is going to be found offensive or it's going to be difficult to deliver. Why? Because the subject matter is unpalatable. What servant wants to be told, please your master well in all things? Yeah, that's going to be a great sermon. I'm going to have people at the edge of their seat saying, amen, brother. The whole servant section in the front two rows of church, you know, they're all going to be, woo. I say the masters would be saying, amen. But come on, seriously, what, what servant wants to hear that? What, what elderly man wants to be told? No, don't drink. And, and, and be serious-minded. Man, be a, be a voice of reason in the church. Don't, be, don't fly off the handle. And people don't want to hear these things. And get this, they haven't wanted to hear them for 2,000 years. So, so don't think, this is not just our day. They just don't want to hear them. And Paul knew that. So he said, hey, preach these things. Talk about these things. Tell people these things, whether they want to hear it or not, because, because the truth is subject matter is unpalatable. Here's another reason why, because he's instructing uh, people that are older than he is, and they might resent being taught about right living by a youngster. Who's that young whippersnapper? <laughs> now, see, I say that about people, but they used to say that about me. You know, who's that young? Who's he to tell me what to do? You people have to listen to me because I'm 60 now. They don't listen to your young when you're young. They don't listen to you when you're old because you're senile. It doesn't matter. You don't win either way. But a pastor has that job. He's solemnly obligated. I was going to do it. I did. I did. said I wasn't going to say it again, but I did. To speak these things. To speak, to utter, to preach. <laughs> to talk, to utter. <laughs> and to preach. Um and by the way, it's because people might think he has no business doing such. So he's to do that. Then, then he's to exhort. The word exhort means to call near. And it gives us the idea of inviting people. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete who comes alongside, who calls us near. Actually, the same term used in translating the Holy Spirit is when he joins us in Scripture. And what a pastor is supposed to do is, is not only to say, oh, this is right. He's, he's, he's supposed to lay on those things, you know, and, and say these things need to be talked about here in the church. But he's also supposed to say, come on, let's do it together. Come with me. Come on, let's live for the Lord. Let's make our lives count. Let's examine our actions, our activity. Let's make sure that, that we're living godly and for goodwill and soberly and righteously. Let's do these things. Exhort. Begging, beseeching is another term that we often use in describing this word exhort. He, just, he shouldn't just speak these things, but he should speak convincingly and with passion and with concern that the listener would accept this truth of sound doctrine and live in light of it. And then how else is he speak it? He's to exhort it. And then, boy, this goes over real well. He's to rebuke. It means to convince, to admonish, to reprove. All right, we just said this. People aren't going to want to hear sound doctrine. 
And you know what? Some people are going to walk contrary to sound doctrine. And pastors are supposed to go to those people and say, stop living contrary to sound doctrine. Straighten up your life. You're not doing right. And that is not popular. No wonder he said, do it with all authority. Why? It's not because Titus is the authority. It's because God has given him that position of authority. And he was responsible to say, you're not doing right. Or to say, come on and let's do it together and let's serve God. Or I'm just going to preach on this today. Because people need to hear it. He's not to be passive, but he's to speak as one who has authority from God to instruct in these very things. And the verse closes with a warning. And this is to Titus. Um, really, there's two aspects. First would be this, that his life is to be an example so no one might reject his authority based on the fact he isn't living sound doctrine himself. So Titus, don't be a reason someone wouldn't live. Don't let anyone despise you. Don't do anything in your life that would cause people to despise your message and your authority and your position as a pastor and the responsibility you have to teach sound doctrine. Don't let people point the finger and say, you're the reason why I'm not going to live that way, because look at you. So let no man despise thee. The second, though, is that it's, and, and the second way to understand it is that this is his responsibility. He ought never let opposition keep him from this vital work. In other words, don't let anyone despise you when you stand up and when you do this work that God has called you to do. And so you can look at it one of two ways, and I think it's good for a pastor to look at it both ways. First, I don't want to be doing anything in my own life that isn't consistent with what I'm going to preach as sound doctrine and, and rebuke and, and, and do whatever is, is necessary, which, by the way, also suggests we have to be discerning in our preaching. We have to know when it's time to rebuke and, and at times when it's time to say, let's go and let's work on this together or when it's just time to preach on something. Amen. Um, so, so I'm not supposed to have anything in my life, but as well, I'm not supposed to let anything keep me from. I'm not going to let anyone despise me. I don't, you know. And here's what a young preacher has to do. I'm just not going to let people despise me. If it's right, it's right. We're going to do it. And, and look, you know, there there does come a time where you say, if no one likes me, um, I'm going to evaluate, make sure I'm not doing anything wrong. But if it's truth, it's truth. So be it. But we're losing people. I don't want that. But, but truth is truth. And, and that's what Paul told Titus to do. And verse 15 wasn't just tacked on. It was an important thing for him to understand and for us to understand as a people. This is a pastor's job. So don't get mad at me. Don't get mad at me when I hit you over the head with truth. Say, thank you, Pastor. <laughs> Ooh, this is good. This is good. I can get this preaching. It's, it's, uh, it is. It's, it's a very serious matter, and it's something that, quite honestly, I haven't, haven't said a lot about because most of the time I've, I've preached the verses up to that point, and yet we need to know that verse 15 is there, and there's a reason for it. 
I hope that, that challenges you as it challenged me. This week, because I came back to the pastor, I said, hey, all we did is just skip that in church. I built with that student. And that will um, just help you to think through what God wants, both the, the challenge of the passage and then the challenge to the process. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the truth of it and, and for the very clear teaching that that sound doctrine is vital to, to God's people to the church and help us to understand that um, that such a life is truly a disciplined life it's not going to be easy it's not going to be fun it's not going to be always palatable and, and sometimes it's going to hurt but as a Christian if we're going to please God and we're going to have God's blessing as we learned this morning Obed-Edom did then it's going to require that sound doctrine be a passion that moves us. And I pray that it would. Help me as a pastor to be discerning and to do my job. And I pray that your people, that we'd all together do what we are so that we'll hear those words when our, that blessed hope takes place. Well done, good and faithful servant. To be true to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you as you live for Him.